you have to have them come out of that huddle with a positive together mindset that they're going to accomplish something. Otherwise it's not going to happen, but you've seen a lot of crazy coaches. And I think you can be crazy when your players are too calm, but when they're crazy, you can't be crazy too. I think that's a must is your demeanor and how you handle yourself and what you're going to instill into your play. Are you going to instill a calmness and a belief in them or are they going to be frenzied because you are? Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome ESPN basketball analyst, Jay Billis. Jay is here today to discuss how great coaches and programs focus on process and long-term planning, attacking and teaching complex zones, how to search for answers, and Jay benches the entire NCAA Rules Committee during the always fun start, sub, or sit. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. Follow us for daily detailed breakdowns on Twitter and YouTube, and subscribe to our Sunday morning newsletter where we consolidate and break down much of the best that we've seen from around the world of basketball. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Jay Billis. We're excited to be joined now by Jay Billis from Rolling Hills High School. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us this morning. We're excited to have you. Good to be with you guys. I'm big admirers. I haven't been introduced to Rolling Hills High School in a while. It's kind of nice. <laughs> hey, I, I'm not just saying this. You guys are phenomenal. Your stuff is off the charts good. I, I not only enjoy it, but the amount I learn from you guys, I'm really grateful. And, and I know it is not easy to, to do all that work, but thanks for doing it because it's made sort of my view of the game a lot easier. I, I, I really enjoy your stuff. Thank you, Jay. Really, really means a lot. That's awesome. Thank you. We want to start with you're around great coaches all the time and great programs and people that just perform at really high levels. And we want to start with what's the process of great coaches and great organizations that you see on a day to day basis? Like, what do great coaches and great leaders do from your standpoint that allows them to have, you know, the top level of success on a, a yearly basis? That's a great question. I I think first they have to have a vision. It's not enough to, in my judgment, just have a plan. A lot of people have a plan, but unless you have a vision for what you want your program to be and how you want your people to go about things, I think you're always going to be kind of day-to-day on how you operate. I tend to think that the best coaches, they understand all the details but they're into the development, not just of their players, but of their staff as well, and that they allow their staff to work. So they're good delegators in addition to being really good at their part. I I think if you wind up taking on too much as a head coach, you're not going to do the best job. You know, you're in a lot of ways, you're, you're a supervisor. So you have to trust your system and your players and your staff to do what they're supposed to do. But you know, I, I think you guys probably see the same thing. You know, you go to a practice, you're around a program, 
And I've been fortunate to be around a lot of the best ones in basketball and actually some in football too. And it's striking the similarities, uh, even though the games are really different. Organized every day, you know, ha- having the same, you know, positive attitude toward accomplishing something to achieving something uh, that particular day and having the long-term, long-term plan, long-term vision. I mentioned plan before is not enough long-term vision for what you want your players to be individually and collectively and what you want your staff to be. Jay, a big topic me and Dan have enjoyed discussing lately is late game coaching. And Mm -hmm. what are you seeing from these great coaches in these late game situations with how they talk to their teams or how they instill confidence in their teams? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, one of the things that I learned when I was a grad assistant at Duke, you know, Coach K obviously has proven how great he is in so many situations. But I always think back to some of the late game situations that we had when things were the craziest, he was the most calm. And I think his calmness in the moment really instilled confidence in the players that they could go out and accomplish what they were trying to accomplish. And and it, that was especially true in that 92 game against Kentucky that I think it was the anniversary of it yesterday. But, you know, Christian Leitner catches that pass from Grand Hill and makes the game-winning shot against Kentucky with, you know, a little over two seconds to go. And when the players came back to the huddle, Kentucky had made a shot off the backboard. A player named Sean Woods hit a, you know, what we thought was kind of an improbable shot. So the players came back, and I think the thought was, that's it, you know that we're done. And I know that that thought was in the back of my mind, like, what are the chances that we can win now? And coach K didn't show any weakness to the players. He just sat them down and they came back kind of slumped shoulder and sat down and he told them we're going to win. And here's how we're going to do it. If I remember right, you know, it's, it's now it's myth and all that. Uh, the players have talked about what happened. So I can't remember, honestly, if I had heard this standing in the back of the huddle or if I've just heard the story of it. Right. But he asked, you know, I asked Grant Hill, can you throw this pass? And later, can you catch it? That stuff. But they left believing they were going to do it. And even believing they were going to do it, I'm sure that odds makers would say the chances were slim, relatively slim, but they would be zero if the players didn't think they could do it. And I think Dean Smith, from what I've been told by his players and his former assistants, and the guys I see now, whether it's Jay Wright or Mark Few, or I was really impressed with the end of the UCLA-Alabama game, how Nate Oates conducted himself at the end of that game. You know, the calmness part of it and trying to make the difficult seem simpler and everybody has their job to do and let's go out and do it and react to the situation in a positive way. I think those are really important things in addition to scheme. So you want to have your team prepared, like all the analysts say, you know, they have to practice this and all that stuff, but you have to have them come out of that huddle with a positive together mindset that they're going to accomplish something. Otherwise uh, it's not going to happen. And, And I happen to think demeanor is really important in that. You've seen a lot of crazy coaches, and I think you can be crazy when your players are too calm, but when they're crazy, you can't be crazy too. And um, I think that's a must is your demeanor and how you handle yourself and what you're going to instill into your play. Are you going to instill a calmness and a belief in them or help them with that? Or are they going to be frenzied because you are? You brought the UCLA and Alabama game up. And, you know, on the other side of the coin too, I was impressed with Mick Cronin. Pat and I were talking beforehand. That was the third time this season that UCLA 
has either lost or had to go to overtime on a buzzer beating shot and how difficult it was to have that shot be hit, get back in the huddle and then come back out and and have a great overtime is obviously difficult as well on the the other side of the coin. Yes. I was at a game years ago. I I can't remember whether it was four or five overtimes, whatever it was, Louisville, Notre Dame. And every time that there was another overtime, the Louisville players were a little bit pissed off. And Mike Bray and his team were like, this is fun, man. Let's go. Now, I don't think either one is right or wrong. I'm not suggesting it. But because Notre Dame won the game, we wind up talking about you know Notre Dame's frame of mind. But the consistency of the coach and the coaching staff with how you handle those things, like if you're going to jump the players all the time, that's fine. Uh, you know, coaches like to call it, they, coaches like to justify everything they do by saying, well, I'm holding them accountable. <laughs> holding them accountable means I get to say whatever I want. It's been my, my yeah. uh, interpretation of that. <laughs> I, don't happen to, I don't happen to agree with that. But as long as the players can rely upon what they're getting, and especially in those situations, what they're getting is not vastly different unless they need to be shocked into reality or something like that, shocked into you know, sort of waking up. I tend to think that the positive, a little more calm is a, is yeah. a good thing because the way I, I agree, the way UCLA responded to that, you know, they, they knocked them out in the, uh, in the overtime period where it could have been, here we go again, type of, of a feeling. Yeah. Jay, if we can uh, pivot a little bit into uh, some tactical stuff. One of the areas we're interested in is zones, the mm-hmm. rise of, people playing zones and, and how they've gotten teams you know, far into the tournament, but also attacking them. I, I think we want to kind of look at it from the offensive side of the ball and how teams still you know, this deep into the season, knowing they're going to play against a, a zone of some sort, still just really, really struggle, at least at the college level, to find great shots on a consistent basis. From your standpoint, you know, wh- what is it offensively that teams can do or have done well that can effectively attack zone and have confidence doing it? Well, that's another really good point. Good question. I mean, years ago, and this is a long time ago, you know, I was seeing so much zone. When I first started in broadcasting, John Cheney's zone was sort of the thing people were trying to figure out. It, it had come up basically after Tarkanian's amoeba and all that in the early 90s. And then that sort of the the zone, the one three one and the different configurations that John Cheney would play. And I started kind of diving into it and trying to learn more about it because when I was a younger player, we never played zone. Our zone you know, was something we threw out there when we were in foul trouble. And it was a survival thing for us more than something that we relied upon a great deal. And most teams didn't play zone. And so we had, we had a couple of zone offenses when I played. One, one was called gaps against a, basically a 2-3 or an even man front. And then we had something called three deep that we ran against an odd man front, against like a 1-3-1. We can talk a little bit about that. But when I started studying Syracuse's 2-3 zone, I went up and saw Jim Bayheim and sat down with him, watched film with him, had him explain to me, explain how this works. And one of the things that I took away from was part of Bayheim's calculus and then Rick Patino's when he was at Louisville was why would I want to guard and have to prepare for every game, you know, 50 different plays that you run, whether it's out of bounds plays, your half court sets, 
all the ball screens that people are running. Why and have my big guys running all over hell? Why would I want to do that? And Patino made the point that I think he got from Beheim, which was, why wouldn't I want to play against your second best offense all the time? Right. So you never practice this. I'm always practicing how to guard stuff that you're going to do. And that gives me an advantage. And it certainly gives me a preparation advantage because there are only five or six things you're, you, know, you can do against the zone that are going to be in any way effective. And most teams, frankly, to your question, don't practice that often. Yeah. And it's a little bit of a mystery to players and they tend to stand around. And that's what the zone wants you to do. It wants you to stand around, take up time, and then have to operate at the end of a clock. And you're usually going to take a three that you don't normally take that's not step in, not in rhythm, things like that. And that's why Syracuse and when Louisville did it, when Rick Pitino was at Louisville, why they were oftentimes at the top of their league in three-point field goal percentage defense. Because they forced a ton of threes, most of them toward the end of a clock. And they weren't threes that were normally taken by the opponent. So to your question too about zone offenses, you know, to me, the most debilitating thing against the zone is dribble penetration. That's the most debilitating thing because it forces help and it's going to force some sort of rotation and you're going to have two playing one. Right. And so you'll often hear coaches say one hard dribble into a gap and then, you know, pass fakes and all that stuff, but dribble penetration I think a lot of the, the best zone attacks keep somebody behind the zone, either one or two players, often post players behind the zone and in the short corner, running the baseline, all that. And then overloads, you know, you can screen it is effective, but overloads are the most effective thing because ultimately that's going to force one of the defenders to have to guard two. Yep. And when one player has to guard two, you know, that's where you can hurt a zone. And certainly offensive rebounding, all that stuff, beating down the floor. There are a whole bunch of things. One last thing that, that I wanted to bring up, Bob Knight said this to me years ago, maybe 20 years ago, uh, about zone. He said, there's one thing you have to keep in mind about zone defense. He goes, one, it has to be something you play all the time to be effective. It doesn't have to be your only defense, but it better be your primary defense. Right. And then he said, when you play man against me, you decide who guards my best player. You play zone against me, I decide who guards my best player. And meaning he could move his best player around to the matchup that he wanted. And, you know, obviously he was good at everything, but really good at dealing with zone because he ran a lot of motion based action against it. It wasn't patterned, but it was motion based where he would move his players around to get the matchups that he wanted. You definitely bring up this penetration. I think me and Dan want to kind of pick at it a little bit further, but. Before we go there, I'd like to ask about catching at the high post. That's a really difficult spot for a player to catch and really try to punish the defense out of the high post. You know, just with your back's turned, trying to square up. It's not a shot that coaches usually want right away. Can you just kind of speak on what you think the value of sending a guy in the high post or maybe keeping the high post free for the penetration? I think if you have somebody there, you have to have somebody in in sort of the high post area or the middle of the zone, essentially. So a lot of, a lot of people say, well, you have to have somebody that can flash and operate near like the logo right below, below yeah. the free throw line. So if you take Syracuse's zone, Bayheim doesn't mind if you get the ball there, right? It, but it depends on who it is. 
So if it's a player that may struggle to make a play there or isn't a great shooter, then the, the middle of the zone defender, usually a big guy, will play back and put late pressure on a shot, if at all. And Bayheim's philosophy generally is, to your point, it's a hard shot. It's only a two. And so when the ball goes in there, they'll fan out to three-point shooters. They scout this stuff, so they know who they're going to fan out to, who they're not going to, who they're going to recover late to. So the idea is getting the ball there, as you guys know, is the defense is going to contract and you're going to be able to pass out from there or put the ball in the deck and drive it or hit that little short jump shot. That's a difficult area from which to operate for most players. It feels constricted. You have people behind you when you get it in there. That's why oftentimes it's somebody that's uh, maybe flashing from behind the zone. Really effective ones. Duke does a lot of this. They'll have a wing guy flash in. So they've got an overload situation there where it's overloaded on one side. They flash a wing in. But it's got to be somebody that can operate out of there and isn't going to panic, that can make that shot can shot fake, put it on the deck and drive it, or can pass it out, whether it's opposite, whatever it is, or to a cutter. Because once the ball goes in there, you have to have cutters too. Can't just stand around out on the perimeter and expect that you're going to get the shot you want. Going back a little bit to the dribble drive concepts against the zone, I'd like to stick on that point for a second too, because your thoughts on maybe why we don't see as many teams run, say like dribble drive motion against a zone rather than you're kind of your traditional three out, two in, Xing, flashing the high post. What's your thoughts on the balance of why we don't see more dribble drive motion against zones in general? I think you should. There are coaches out there that play essentially their man offense against the zone and make the zone conform to it and have to guard those actions. There's no reason you can't run a essentially a horn set or something. UConn used to do that against Syracuse, but they had you know bigger players. They would essentially run a horn set, put two guys in the high post, hit one, dive. You got somebody coming up from the the corner. There there was all kinds of things that they could do out of that. But essentially, the dive from the opposite post, once they hit the elbow, could be difficult to deal with. There are a lot of ways to do it and do it right. But your players have to understand, sort of, they have to be able to make certain reads in order to do it. Because you still have to make reads against the zone. You're not going to diagram your way out of a good zone and run the same action over and over again. Like I remember one time West Virginia was playing at Syracuse. And this is back when Beeline was at West Virginia. And they had really good shooters. And I went with Bill Raftery in to see Beheim before the game. And as usual, Beheim was like watching television or something. <laughs> and we had said, uh, he's such a great guy. I, I, he, he's got the reputation of being a curmudgeon, but he's such a great guy. Uh, but he, he gets frosted when somebody asks him a question he doesn't like, and then everybody <laughs> thinks he's not a nice guy, but he is. <laughs> so he was watching TV or something. And, and I had said, I said, man, this is going to be a tough game. These guys can really shoot. And he, he said, well, they, he goes, they can't beat us. And I was like, they can't beat you. And he goes, all right, all right. If they hit 14 threes, they can beat us, but that's it. And he started talking about all the things that he could do against their one, three, one, and all the difficulties that they would have against his, because they didn't have a lot of guys that would, mm. that could penetrate. If they decided to attack it, you know, toward the middle, that's going to take away, you know, sort of their normal three point attack. And he, then he said, how many, how many lob plays can a team run against us? Like if they want to screen you know, do what Carolina does sometimes. They'll reverse it and then screen the middle guy yeah. and slide somebody along the baseline, get a dunk or something. Because how many times are they going to do that? One, it's just a two, and you're not going to beat us with 40 lobs. And uh, right. 
And he's right. If you commit to zone, it works, but you have to commit to it. Most people don't want to. Jim used to say this all the time, Beheim. He goes, look at the three-point numbers. He said, all the best three-point shooting teams. He goes, they're doing that against man. He goes, all all that's being given up against man-to-man. How good could it be? And then he goes, and then look at their numbers against us. And he goes, you shouldn't be asking me why I'm playing zone. You should be asking everybody else why they're not. And uh, it's like, okay, that's that's a good point. (laughs) (laughs) Jay, do you feel like over the past, say, 15, 20 years that coaches have gotten better at teaching, you know, more complex zones, um, like that zones defenses in general have gotten better. Yeah. Because they're not playing areas anymore. It's, you know, more matchup oriented and they do a better job, I think, of getting to shooters and knowing where shooters are and then having wings that, you know, long armed wings that can come up. So you're not just in a two, three configuration all the time. Like heck, before passes are made, Syracuse's zone looks like essentially a two, two, one. Yeah. And all of a sudden, yeah, you're making passes. You're trying to get a pass. If you want to pass into a corner, you're trying to get it over somebody. It can be really difficult. And to Pat's point earlier about, you know, getting into the middle, that can be an uncomfortable spot for a lot of players. And even on the dribble penetration side, a guard or wing that penetrates, you know, into a gap when that gap collapses you know, sometimes they wind up getting it deflected. It can lead to some tough passes that players might not be used to. But I always remember like Jim Calhoun, when he was at UConn, they did all these shooting drills from difficult distances. So, you know, they do a lot of short corner jump shots, you know, shooting drills that produce those shots. So you're taking these little, not necessarily floaters, but little, you know, might little eight foot shot, 12 foot shot, 10 foot shot stuff like that. And a lot of that was because of the zones that they were going to play against, that those were shots that they had to feel comfortable with making those little touch shots sure. that can be difficult and daunting when you're playing against the zone. All of a sudden you're short arming these right. things and because you're not shooting them all the time. Sure. And that, I thought that was really helpful to their zone attack too. Well, Jay, we'd like to transition now into a fun segment that we always play here on the show called start, sub, or sit. So what we'll do is we'll give you three basketball topics and you'll start one, you'll sub one, you'll sit one, and we can have a little discussion around it. Um, okay. We will not give you any coaches or anything like that. It's These are all fun basketball <laughs> topics. So <laughs> I might be better with those. There are a few I'd like to, there are a few I'd like to sit and sub. And- <laughs> well, maybe, maybe off air. We'd yeah. love to get those up, uh, get that <laughs> from you. <laughs> We'll start with just a kind of a fun one for you. These are preseason college basketball tournaments for you to be sent to, to broadcast from. Okay. So start, sub, or sit. Yeah. Battle for Atlantis down in the Bahamas, the Maui Invitational, or one of the tournaments in New York City. I would go uh, start Maui, sub Atlantis, and sit New York. I think that should be fairly obvious why I'm doing all that. <laughs> I do love going to New York, but November, I, I would prefer to be in Maui. And Maui's the best atmosphere of all those. The only reason I don't say Atlantis right up there with it is because you, you never leave the hotel. And that makes it second place for me. If you could leave the hotel, maybe I would, I would like it <laughs> a little bit better. It's, fan, it's really well run. It's a great tournament. But sure. Ma- Maui, you're outside more, and it's uh, it's awesome. How long are you there? 
Yeah, you get there. I usually get there on the Thursday or Friday before the tournament starts on that Monday. And so part of the reason I do that is because of just the jet lag of it uh, for me coming from the East Coast. Uh, the setting doesn't hurt, but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> on on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I, I'm working the whole day uh, working. Uh, I'm sitting in a gym, but you're basically watching, you watch every practice. And so you're going back and forth from gym to gym, whether it's the Civic Center, Lahaina Civic Center, or uh, the high school. There's a Lahaina Luna High School that the teams practice at. And then when the tournament starts, it's, you know, it's multiple games a day for three straight days. And then you, you hop a red eye to get out. But, you know, being able to go to work in shorts every day is a, a really nice thing. And then the, the setting is so good. Like the games are great because the gym, that Civic Center, for some reason, it's a perfect place to watch a basketball game. It's a high school atmosphere with college teams and the best college teams. And so it just, I don't know why it, it just produces like this magical atmosphere that you can't duplicate anywhere else. It's a lot of fun to watch, obviously. And I'm sure we kind of figured that might be either a, a start or a sub for you, but you never know. Some people love New York. You know? <laughs> it's an IQ test is what it is. It's an IQ test. Uh, <laughs> people want to make sure. Yeah. 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 All right. Uh, getting back to, to basketball, you have a dynamic guard. You're going to, put them in a, a screen situation with two players. You're going to send two to screen. So start, sub, or sit a kind of a 77, a, a double drag situation, the Spanish or stack pick and roll, or the horn setup. I see so much of the horn setup. I'll probably, uh, I'll probably sit that one. <laughs> and uh, I'll go uh, stack one, drag two. Okay. Stack start, and then drag sub. I like watching European basketball. It's so innovative. And when I played over there, I played in Italy for two seasons and then Spain for a little while. And it was not as innovative then as it is now. I think still the United States, we were ahead in sort of coaching innovation and in the game, but not anymore. That is so much fun to watch. And uh, the ball movement, player movement, it, it's fantastic. This actually brings me to a bigger question, Jay, because watching the season this year, especially in the tournament, I feel like the coaches have done a really great job of really being innovative. And do you feel that the good bad out of this pandemic is that the coaches really improved as far as their craft since they weren't, you just, they weren't recruiting. Obviously the seasons were starting later. Do you feel like the coaching got better as a side effect of maybe this uh, unfortunate pandemic situation? I haven't really thought about it that way. That may be true. I mean, I, I think the coaches in college generally are really good. What I have seen, though, and I, I don't know what you guys think about this, I, I think the, the, the college rules suck. Okay. Um, I think we got yeah. major issues, and, and we just won't fix them. And FIBA rules and the NBA rules and the way the games are officiated, I think favor offensive play. And the way the game is officiated and college rules and, and the way they're interpreted favor defensive play. Yeah. And so we get a lot of these rock fights because of the way the game's officiated. And it's not the official's fault. They're just the traffic cops that their bosses yeah. are telling what to do. It's the rules committee's fault and, and all the different supervisors. It's all their fault. We brought up the Alabama UCLA game. I mean, the charge block call calls in those games were criminal. And one of them decided the game when Tiger Campbell had that vertical drive 
toward the baseline on the left side and then dropped it off to Cody Riley for the what turned out to be the right it should have been a game winning basket. He charged right into Herb Jones. And it was a play that was called in the first half, a charge when Herb Jones did it in that very spot to Tiger Campbell. I mean, it, it, it was almost poetic yeah. in how crappy it was and how much it affected the game. And you're like, why are we doing this? Yeah. Like the guy gave the ball up. That's incidental contact. I think the way it was called at the end of the game was the right way to call it all the time, but not after we've called it that way the whole yeah. season and then ignore it. It just frosts me that we do that. So uh, there, there's my rant for you. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to sit college basketball rules and, uh, and start, start everybody else's rules until we, we do the right thing and get a better game as a result of it. <laughs> Only since you brought it up, and I'll go down this rabbit hole with you, but the way they call illegal screens is, yeah. drives me crazy, and it hurts the pick-and-roll game so bad. Yeah, and whether it's whether it's pick-and-roll or dribble handoffs, whatever it is, and that's what I'm talking about, the game being so skewed to the defense. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm on the competition committee, and I'm on the committee with a bunch of great people. Like, they're unbelievable. We happen to differ on some issues with regard to this, but I had one person, not, not on the committee, but... Uh, in talking about this, say, well, you have to remember, defense is 50% of the game. I'm like, when is that not true? Somebody's <laughs> always got the ball and somebody's always on defense. Like, what? That makes no sense at all. Yeah. That, that was just, that. that's like somebody saying, it is what it is. That doesn't mean yeah. shit. <laughs> that doesn't right. mean anything. And the point is, like, whatever rules you're complaining about, um, like, that, that's not fair to the defense. I mean, well, first of all, it is fair to the defense. And the second thing is you get the ball back and you get the exact same rules to play offense on your end. This is supposed to be about who can make more shots, not who can, you know, bully the other guy and who gets an advantage out of incidental contact. And that's why the, the charge block thing drives me nuts is somebody slides under a defender that has won a path to the basket and they can do it even after the offensive player hits his plant foot. Right. That's crazy. <laughs> and, and we keep doing it. And then, so we're going to stop certain plays because they're, we, we say we want to make the game less physical, but we want to celebrate a collision at the rim. Right. Yeah. Like that makes no sense to me at all. And I think your point is so good about the screening stuff. It's not right for the players one, and it's definitely not right for a product that we're selling. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, we, we can let you out of that rabbit hole there. Thanks. That was that was good. <laughs> I dragged you down. We don't it. want to get you any more any trouble with that. <laughs> um, but that, no, that was I'm great. Hey, you're not going to get me in trouble on that. I am trying to stir it up on this. Yeah, no, it's this great. Thing because because we have got to change this. We are notoriously slow in the men's game in college. Notoriously slow. It's not enough to say, well, it's really difficult to change the rules. And no, it's not difficult because <laughs> right. it isn't difficult. When we want to change something yeah. to make a bunch of money, we change it in two seconds. <laughs> right. And, uh, and we need to be able to do that with the, with the rules of the game. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So I think it's me, Pat, right? Yeah. So, okay. Jay, if you're a, a high school senior and you're, you're a projected, you know, one and done type of player, start sub sit now the best opportunity for you to get a year of great experience before you go into the draft. So start subset the G league for a year going over to Europe or internationally, or go play for a major division one program. I would start major division one. I would sub G league and I would sit overseas. And the reasoning is 
I think the development of the person and player is college is best suited for that. And I, I do believe that the socialization that you get in college is really valuable. And then establishing a relationship with an institution that you can return to and that will support you in the future because they've invested part of their reputation in you. I think that's valuable. Do I think that players should be able to make money while they're in college so that that can be factored into any, you're damn right. You know, I, I think ultimately we're going to have to do this because I do think all these competitive areas you're talking about, not necessarily Europe, that's a bigger jump for, I think, for any player that's younger to have to leave the country is a, is a bigger hurdle. Mm -hmm. But the G League and some of these other things, players are going to start doing that. And college will change sort of how they view allowing compensation to players when, when the best players aren't coming anymore and it affects the bottom line. Because at least I believe this, you start losing top talent, people aren't going to watch like they do now. It's going to change. Our audience is older and it's going to age out and we don't have as much behind it as, uh, as people think. And those other options, like if the NBA wants to kill college basketball, they can do it. Yeah. They can do it. This G League thing is going to be the first step. Jay, do you think you started the, the major Division One program um, and you mentioned some of the positives of it, but the other two have potentially the positive of these guys playing against men or grown men mm -hmm. for a year. So I guess the balance of going to a program that you know has an established coach and culture as opposed to just going and playing against bigger, stronger, more physical athletes you know, is there a balance there where some it might be better for certain kids in certain situations more than others? Yeah, I'm talking generally more than specifically. Uh -huh. There are certainly specific cases where uh, maybe going to a major Division One program wouldn't be the best thing for a particular person. It can't be very many of them. But one of the areas of pushback that I have with my friends that say so and so's not ready for the NBA. They don't have to be ready for the NBA to leave college and go pro. Mm -hmm. Like you can't convince me because I know, I mean, I know down to my socks that it's true that players can develop at, at least as fast a rate in the professional ranks than they can in college. They devote more time to it and they have nothing but time to work on their games with coaches that are devoted and staffs that are bigger than what they have in college that are completely devoted to their development. And so we may not see it in an NBA game, but players are developing without playing. And they're in the G League and they're developing without us seeing it. Now we're seeing it more often because G League games are televised more often, but absolutely in a, the, the player side only, absolutely that's, that, that may be the better way to go for you as a player, but the complete package, I still think college is an important step for your total being because you're going to spend more time. You're going to spend a lot more time in your life as a, uh, a former player than as a player. True. And I think having, like, I just can't imagine go, you know, a player that goes directly into the G League winding up in college after that, after not having established any relationship with an institution of higher learning, because they'll welcome you back if you've been there. Yeah. If you haven't been there, it's going to be a tougher thing to go back and accomplish. And if you want to coach, if you want to be, you're going to have to have, a, unless you just want to coach in the MBA or something. If you ever want to coach in college, you have to have a degree to do it. Okay, Jay, you're going to be defending a dribble handoff. You're defending at the college level a dribble handoff. The defense you would prefer to run, start, sub, sit, chasing over with the big dropped, going under the handoff, or switching the handoff. 
I would, well, I mean, if you're going to switch it, you've got to have the personnel to do it. So uh, I, I would, hopefully I could start that. I could start switch and then you would, you know, hopefully switch up. So you're taking something away rather than, uh, you know, just switch to contain uh, and then not get split. And then I would drop and slide through under and then, and then over, like, I like the idea of blowing it up, but that leads to a lot of fouls on the college level. And so I think oftentimes, you know, heck, if I'm, if I'm defending some of that stuff, I just, I just run into the, <laughs> run into the guy handing it off and they'll call a foul on him half the time. <laughs> uh, if you do that, I mean, to, to our point earlier, yeah. you know, you know what I see, you guys study it uh, more than I do. Like the, the beauty of what I do is I see things that I like that I, I explain, I, I have to explain it. I don't have to stop it. I really like the dribble pitch. Yeah, because it's it's harder to switch, and you don't have to you know you don't have to mess with as much with running into it, and you and you can still keep it and reject it and still backdoor it and all that stuff. And I love that stuff. I, I think that's you know pretty next level too. We don't see it as much in college. That we you get a lot of the DHOs around the top, and they yep. switch that stuff, and just to get into some action and maybe get a matchup they like. But I, I like the dribble handoff stuff on the side more because there's so much more that really good teams do with it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I guess, you know, this question was kind of came about because especially in this tournament, you know, specifically if you look at Loyola Chicago, who runs a ton of DHOs and teams were just consistently chasing their guards over. Well, that's a, another great point that you make. Some of the really good action you see are some of these handoff actions that are run maybe above the elbow or something, and they they curl it, and then the ball handler keeps it and throws the pass over the top as long as that you know because in the middle of the floor it's a little bit easier to eliminate weak side help and you know it's it's really beautiful action and so to your point I, I talked to a coach that was playing Baylor earlier in the year we had talked about the idea of you know did you see what Iowa State did. And it was basically, can you, can you make them take maybe a shot from behind a screen that they don't take as often? Mm -hmm. uh, they'll make, they're going to make them. They're going to make some. They're not yeah. going to make them all. But wouldn't you rather do that than all these overhelp situations where they're kicking to a step-in three and you're scrambling all over the place? Isn't it better to contain that and then maybe get a little late pressure on it? And, and they're shooting more of those off the dribble or, you know, like not, not a bunch of college players are making shots behind yeah. whether it's handoff action or, or ball screen action. They're not making that many behind it relative to what they're making on step ends. Right. And I don't know. I, I think you're right. It's about, Hey, what can we limit? What shots can we give up that we can live with that'll maybe give them a lesser percentage? And can we get them to do, take shots that they don't take all the time that they prefer not taking? No. You know, that's the game now. And and Loyola is is about as good defensively at doing that as anybody because they don't overhelp. They never come off corner shooters ever. And like, how hard is that? Like, don't come off a corner shooter because that help doesn't do any good anyway. Make them take a tough two. If somebody drives down, you know, has a slot drive, make them finish it. Right. And that, that's not an easy shot to finish. No. And it's only a tough, it's only a two. Tough, tough two. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. tough too. That, that's the whole game now. We yeah. we didn't have to do when I played. You know, that's all there were. We're tough too. <laughs> you know, the mid range shot is dead. No, it's not. They still take them. But heck, that that three point shot, we would have taken them too if we could have. Yeah, we just didn't have it. Absolutely. <laughs>
Well, Jay, you're uh, you're off the uh, start sub sit hot seat. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. More fun for me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for your time today. We really enjoyed this, and uh, I know you're busy, and so to take the time out to talk to us, this has been great. So, thank you for that. It's been great for me. Like, when do I get a chance to talk basketball and rant at the same time? I got to rant, <laughs> yeah, well, and I got on my high horse on top of a soapbox. Like that was. I don't get that opportunity. Yeah. You're welcome back to do that anytime. Yeah. You, you got a, a rule to pick with the yeah. committee. Come on back. We got you. Um, <laughs> to finish here, interested to hear what some of the best investments that you've made in your career have been. Well, the best investment I ever made was law school. Uh, and it was something that, that was sort of, uh, I don't want to say forced upon me, but my parents were big advocates of more than a undergraduate degree. And neither one of my parents had the opportunity to go to college. And my my dad especially thought that going to law school was was a really good degree to have. And he used to sell it to me by saying, hey, you know, the best part is you don't have to be a lawyer. Uh, you know, if you go to medical school, you you're probably an idiot if you're not a doctor, why would you do that? But if you're if you you don't have to be a lawyer. And somehow that kind of appealed to me. But the training and education and being around so many smarter people, I think really pushed me, one, to be more prepared. Two, I was taught how to find the answers to questions that I didn't know the answer to. And so it became saying, I don't know, didn't seem like a daunting thing to me because I knew I could find the answer and at least educate myself better. And then being able to present a coherent argument, standing up in front of a uh, whether it's standing up in front of a judge or whatever it would be in court. I, I argued on the appellate level at times, which was really intimidating. A little red light on top of a camera doesn't bother me anymore after, after doing all that stuff. So that, that was the best investment I ever made. And I did it while I was a grad assistant at Duke. So I was learning. I felt like like that was a, an education in basketball that I wanted. And I thought that was going to be my life's work. And it turns out, in a way, it has been. But I don't think I would have been able to take advantage of it without law school. And then that led to practicing law, which, which I think sharpened whatever skill level I have even more. How did going to law school change how you look at the game of basketball in general? Like, Did you look at it differently after you got out of it as opposed to how you were before as a player? Yeah. Oh, it definitely changed the way I looked at it because I was much more willing, I think, to study it. I think law school... And then especially, it wasn't just law school, but it was the people that I, I went to school with. And then the professors I had, all, all the amazingly smart people made me realize how much I didn't know. And I think even though I, I, I come across as somebody who believes he knows it all, uh, <laughs> I, I don't think I do. And, uh, and I'm, I'm always trying to stress test whatever ideas I have. I think the way the reason I come across as when I'm in an advocacy position or trying to make a point, of course I'm gonna. I've thought about what I'm talking about, and I'm going to make my point in a manner that is is convincing. I try to be convincing if I'm trying to make that kind of point. But I realized, especially after law school and after my experience on Coach Gay's staff as a grad assistant, how much I didn't know about basketball, and I started studying the game in a way that I didn't as a player. And it it opened things up for me. And even now, I mean, I think my education in basketball has been enhanced greatly by being a broadcaster. 
And that's because I am let into everybody's practices, their scouting reports, their meetings, and I see how they get to do it. And it's different everywhere. And so I've been able to not only learn, but kind of steal ideas. And it's helped me explain things that I see a little bit, hopefully a little bit better. I try not to turn the games into clinics because talk about a rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> you, you try to you try to bring things up when they when they can make a, a good point, you hope a good point to the largest audience. But it, law school definitely helped me in that regard with, with basketball by, because it maybe it humbled me in realizing that there's so much out there that, man, I just don't know, but I've got the tools to figure it out. And so I've tried to figure out basketball uh, in that regard too. What you said, it helped you study the game. Could you maybe an example of how learning law, studying law, like translated to how you studied or what ways did you study that were different? I was trying, I think I tried to figure out, okay, what, what, what are these teams trying to accomplish? I'm willing to dive into, okay, what are they doing here? Where did that come from? And certain things you like saying, okay, this is going to be important in the game. I want to be, I want to be ready to be able to point this out if it comes up. And you'll hear other broadcasters, I'm sure, confirm this, but of the work I do for a particular game, uh, the preparation I do, maybe 10% of it comes out in the game. But I don't know which 10% of the 100% of work I do, I don't know which 10% is going to make it into that particular game. You have an idea of some of it, but there, there's a whole bunch of stuff that you have ready that doesn't, you know, you can't fit it in or, you know, they got a promo coming up or whatever, you can't do it. I think what I've tried to do is I take more time to study something and figure it out. And I don't, maybe I won't use it this week or this game, but I'll use it down the line. And then I go back a lot. I go back and look at things like, where did this come from? How did this evolve? And try to learn that way. Because if you don't, I think if, if you don't know the origins of things, it's harder to figure out where not only where the game is, but where it's going. That may be true with a particular coach what they're running, how it varies, how it changes. Like, how can you spot a change if you don't know what, what came before it? And that, that's part of the thing. Like, I've never liked it when somebody will point out and say, well, so-and-so never played or they never played, they never coached. What does that have to do with anything? Like, they're either right or they're not on the point they're making. But like, if somebody hasn't played or coached, or even if they did play or coach, doesn't mean they've continued to study the game. It's changing all the time. And someone in my position... Uh, and and I, I believe someone in, in in your position, you have no excuse anymore for not knowing stuff because it's all out there. You can get YouTube videos on, on your DHO question or, you know, there's all kind of clinic stuff. You can learn this stuff. So it's really on, you have to study it uh, if you want to be ultra prepared and, and know what the hell's going on. And I think it becomes pretty clear the, the ones that do and the ones that don't, at least I think it, it's pretty clear. Uh, but I love it. I love learning about it. Doesn't mean I'm going to use it all the time. And but I, I I can't get enough of basketball. I just it's it's so different now than when I played. You didn't ask me this, but I'll tell you this little story. I was talking with a friend of mine, like uh, you know we're we're old timers and played a long time ago, and we were laughing about how guys our age like to act like the game was so much better years ago, and it wasn't. It wasn't. It's better now. And, uh, and the players are better now generally than they've ever been. And uh, I had a coach a couple of years ago ask me, and this happens every so often, they'll say, hey, when you were at Duke, how did you guys guard ball screens? You know, we never guarded ball screens. There weren't any ball screens. 
There were no ball yeah. screens when I played, unless two players ran into each other by accident. <laughs> right, right. Everybody ran motion or they ran flex or reverse action or stuff like that. Nobody ran ball screens. So my job as a big guy was get down the floor, beat my man down the floor on defense, meet him at the free throw line, and then wrestle his ass <laughs> to try to keep him from getting low post position on the block. And, you know, like push him off the lane, stuff like that. So I wasn't like Hunter Dickinson of Michigan where I got to run out and guard a ball screen. Then I got to get back and guard the rim. I didn't have to do any of that stuff. And it was infinitely easier for me as a player than it is for a, a big guy now. So the game I'm watching now has no resemblance to the game I play. So all the stuff I learned is a great foundation for what's happening now and how the game's evolved. But it doesn't do me a damn bit of good to think about what happened when I played because none of this stuff happened. Uh, none of it. It's way different than it, than it was back then. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to subscribe to our Sunday morning newsletter for additional insights on this podcast. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Oh, do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs>